I'm Stephen Wright, and this is a Mail Plus true crime podcast. The Yorkshire Ripper, a detective's story. Episode 3. Peter Sutcliffe had been locked up for life in 1981 for murdering 13 women and attacking seven others. But for Chris Gregg, the quest for justice in the Ripper case wasn't over. More than two decades later, something continued to trouble him. I have the greatest respect for you, George. Good Lord. You are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. Peter Sutcliffe had been jailed, but there was the big question of who was Wearside Jack? And that was something which you couldn't forget, could you, Chris, as a detective? Who was this man who derailed the Ripper inquiry, whose claims of being the Ripper had resulted in vast resources being ploughed into finding out who he was and distracted George Oldfield, amongst others? That's correct, Stephen. And I became head of CID in West Yorkshire. And I'd always felt that as I was going through my career, in the back of my mind was, who is the person who sent the tape? Why haven't we caught him? Why haven't we sorted that out? And as I was going up the ranks, I spoke to, at various stages, senior colleagues and just said, hey, have we to, you know, try and find the ripper letters and the tape and maybe we can now there's this new thing you know dna uh, maybe we we have a, a chance of sorting this out once we're all and you know i was told that there were reviews done into finding the the evidence the letters and the tape they'd been long destroyed and forget it i took a position of head of cid and uh, it was in a period of time in west yorkshire where we had had the 7-7 bombings, uh, terrorists living in West Yorkshire, Dewsbury and Leeds, and so our investigation teams were heavily involved in working with the Met on that. We'd had the murder of Sharon Beshineski, a policewoman in Bradford who'd been murdered in a, in a botched robbery. So we had a lot on our plates, but we had a cold case unit, and one of the things in and amongst our normal day-to-day work, I just set a, a line of inquiry going, piece of work going, which was, well, there were two things. The Freedom of Information Act was just coming in and um, we wanted to make sure we'd got everything electronically archived to do with a lot of our major crime cases. So I set some work going to electronically archive a lot of the Ripper material because I knew there was still quite a bit of public interest in it and thought this needs to be pulled under one roof in our major crime store and that's that's what we set going. But I put another term of reference into the requirement which was to determine where the missing letters were because if we could find the letters then on the seals or the back of the stamp there could be some some material for DNA. So that was back in 2005. What did your detectives uncover? Uh, We found that the letters had been transferred from our Weatherby laboratory in West Yorkshire. So the detectives who were assigned to this they followed the evidence and they concluded at at the end of this that what had happened to the three letters, there were three letters sent by the hoaxer, that they'd been taken to the 
London Laboratory, the Met Laboratory, and the chemical testing on paper to, to lift fingerprints, which it was obviously just fingerprints at the time, was it, well, it's called ninhydrin, and it's like a deep purple colour, but when you put it on the paper, it turns it black. And all the three letters had gone through this chemical process, and all the paper had turned complete black to try and lift the fingerprints out. And the detectives came back and they said, oh, we've been down to the lab and uh, we spoke to some of the scientific team who were working on this, on, on the letters, uh, to get the fingerprints on. And they said they had to fumigate the lab because they'd really tried that hard to get the fingerprints. They'd had to fumigate the lab, but the letters were destroyed. So what did you think at, at that point? We thought, well, this is a bit of a setback. Scientists being scientists, we know that some of them think to the future. Always, my experience of forensic scientists, that they'll always keep snippets of things or snippets of fabric from crime scenes, if anything that can be biological, just in case advances happen in the future in science. And we were lucky with this because the Weatherby Lab, to start with, they told us they had got nothing left, everything had gone, everything had been destroyed. And we said, look, sent a letter to them, thought, put this in writing, can you categorically say that you know, there is nothing from the Ripper letters or the tape that you have got stored in the laboratory? But long story short, um, a wonderful forensic scientist called Val Tomlinson uh, found in a part of the laboratory where it shouldn't have been a seal of a two centimetre strip of letter number three that the scientist at the time had cut off the envelope. So it was the part of the gummed seal. And the scientist thought, well, we're sending this down to London. I'm just going to keep this two centimetre seal here, just in case something in the future happens scientifically that we don't know about today. Thank goodness that scientist had that foresight. The seal was put between two glass slides, perfectly preserved. And when Val Tomlinson found that in the lab, filed where it shouldn't have been, she blew the dust off the glass and in there was a seal of that envelope. The rest was straightforward. It was just a case then of Val and Peter Grant, who was the major crime forensic scientist. They worked on this and they got a one in a billion match to John Humble. quite a moment in your professional life because that man well, had tormented you and your colleagues more than 20 years ago with such damage as you said you know it'd been a very 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 damaging hoax hadn't it and now you had this incredible breakthrough it was a moment you know, and through my career going up the greasy pole of this to become a senior detective and head of cid and doing all that stuff but in the back of my mind all the way was, you know, and, and working on that Ripper case as well in my career, seeing what happened and the mistakes that were made and, and the lines of inquiry that were set. In the journey I went on my own career, it was formulative in my mind as well with things as I was progressing, not to try and make mistakes that were made there and do this and do that. And we're learning by mis mistakes. And always in the back of my mind was, this is a piece of this jigsaw that, it hasn't been sorted out. And in the aftermath of 
Sutcliffe for arrest. Understandably, in a way, that who the hoaxer was at that point was a, almost put it to bed that you know it, it's over. Just draw the shutters over here. We're you know we're getting battered from all sides. But in my mind, I thought I want to know who this is. Yeah, who the hell did this? You know, yes, the killer has been caught, but somebody involved themselves in this that caused what happened to happen. And I thought this needs sorting out. If there's a chance to sort it out, it should be sorted out. And as it's turned out, it was sorted out. We found the, the missing piece of that jigsaw. You said he had the DNA breakthrough was utterly conclusive, but why was he in the system, the police system, so that you could like, identify him so quickly? Yes, he was in the police system. And the one in a billion match was against the DNA database where anybody convicted of certain crimes was in there. But interestingly, he'd been convicted only about five years before we had arrested him. And when we looked at what he'd been convicted for, it was a petty crime. I think it was around about 1997 where he'd been arrested for, I think it was a minor burglary and his DNA had been taken, and he was in the system. So, you know, we had luck on our side here now, where we not only had the DNA from the gum seal that Val Tomlinson and Peter Grant's team had sorted for us, but the suspect was in the system, and it was a straightforward match, bang, one in a billion match against this suspect. When Peter Grant rang me, I was in a meeting and I, I could see it was Peter Grant's number. And I, I'm, I'm leaving the office. I need to go and take this call. And he said, Tracy said, we've got the match. And I said, Peter, who, who is it? He said, it's a guy called John Humble. I said, who, who is it? Never heard. Who, who is this guy? I said, is he from Sunderland? He said, yes. And I just thought this has got to be the guy. And so, you know, dispatched the team off to Sunderland, arrested John Humble. That night, we had him back in Wakefield within hours. Humble told the police who arrested him that he sent the letters and tape to the Ripper inquiry because he was bored. And this, this mystery figure, you know, who's got his own name of notoriety now in British criminal history, you know, a sad, heavy-drinking, unemployed labourer. It must have been incredible to professional pride, no doubt, that he had been caught at last, but a real low life. Not surprising, really. Why on earth would you want to hoax like that in such a damaging way? I know, and you know, he um, he took about 24 hours to sober up because he was heavily inebriated when we arrested him. In fact, we have a recording of John Humble from his police interview after his arrest. He was asked to read out the same words he'd recorded on tape all those years ago. You can hear him slurring and struggling to make out the words. But despite the passage of time, there's no mistaking it's the same voice. I'm Jack. I say you are still having no luck catching me. I have a great respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no nearer catching me now than four years ago when I started. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. When he was questioned, he 
pretty quickly admitted what he'd done. Was he remorseful? I would say yes, he was. Um, unlike Peter Sutcliffe, John Humble was, I think, genuinely remorseful. And interestingly, again, Stephen, you know, when we questioned him, he said when this started going big as it did, when the cops were up in Sunderland and they were all giving the handwriting and doing this and doing that, he said, I rang the police. I rang the police and at the incident room in Sunderland and I, t- I said to them, you know, it's not right, it, it's not true, it's me. I, and he said, and anyway, he said, I couldn't get them to believe that it, it wasn't genuine. And we wondered whether whether that was correct or not, but it was correct because um, we found that there was a, a tape that had been taken up in Sunderland at the time and just after the big drive up in Sunderland and the big publicity for it all, a call had gone into the incident room in Sunderland, taken by a PC mount, it's there recorded, and even PC mount thought the voice sounded the same, but it could never be 100% certain at that point, so it was never acted upon. So, get this clear, Humble gave his real name to the incident room, saying... He, no, he, he, rang in, he rang in anonymously. He just, he didn't give his name, but he rang in. But another interesting thing, you know, talk about look of the devil. Shortly after that, uh, we found out that John Humble had tried to kill himself. This was all around the same time. So the big publicity, all happening. People around the Castletown area of Sunderland were being uh, questioned and handwriting taken. And John Humble was at a particularly low point in his life, and he jumped from a bridge into the river. And he was actually picked up by the police barge and taken, you know, to hospital or wherever he was. And But interestingly, one of the lines of inquiry that should have been followed at that point um, as part of the Sunderland inquiry was anyone committing suicide or attempting to commit suicide should have been subject to an, an elimination process, you know, because obviously that was a, a standard kind of procedure, a line of inquiry that happened. So in West Yorkshire, that was happening at the time. And in Sunderland, the same line of inquiry was followed there. For some reason, that was a breakdown up there. That then There was no checking out of him done at that time, which should have been done. And if it had have been, it would have very quickly come to light that um, that he was the author of the, the tape and the letter. And when we questioned him, he said that the Ripper squad working up in Sunderland, they went to the house next door and questioned his neighbour and took his handwriting and he thought, oh, they'll be coming to me next. But of course, his was the cut-off point and <laughs> these odd things happen. You said that he was remorseful when he was eventually arrested. He couldn't have been that remorseful because he didn't sort of step forward to say categorically, back in the day, I'm the hoaxer. Yeah, yeah. you're right on that point. Um, he, he was certainly showing remorse when... Um, when he was caught, but up to that point, yeah, he'd had plenty of time to come forward or to let the police know that these tapes and things were not genuine. He'd involved himself in something that was no interest to him or shouldn't have involved himself. He decided to involve himself through his anti-police background. Uh, He'd been at one point accused of assaulting an officer. So there there was a lot, I think there was a lot of anti-police in his background why he did it he said 
uh, the cops I, I saw on the news, you know, the cops, the police were making a real mess of it. I just wanted to focus them more and to, to let them know that they're not doing a good job, they're no good. Well, yeah, it didn't really help in that respect. And, and we know what um, his involvement led to. Of course, George Oldfield, who he tormented, died many, many, many years ago. About I don't think I think it was in the early eighties, wasn't it? Not long after Sutcliffe had been jailed. I wonder what George Oldfield would have made about the true identity of Wearside Jack. Well, in, interestingly, you're right, absolutely right. George, George Oldfield had died long before, but um, on the night that we arrested him, I contacted Dick Holland because Dick Holland was still alive at the time because I knew that it was going to be on the news once we released it. And I didn't want Dick Holland hearing on the 10 o'clock news and just wondering what all this was about. So I contacted him just before we were going to charge him. And um, I gave him a call. He was at home and told him what had happened. And he was, he was very reflective, uh, Stephen. He was, you know, he just said he was pleased that, uh, he said, I'm pleased that this has been finally cleared. And, you know, I, I just had a few minutes chatting to him and I could tell that, you know, this was something that was still very, very, very close to his mind and thoughts. And, yeah, it, it was a reflective conversation. And it was, it was one that I just thought he deserved to hear from me. We can hear ex-detective superintendent Dick Holland speaking before John Humble was jailed for eight years in 2006, expressing his regret over the importance West Yorkshire Police had attached to the tape. I think the, the major mistake we made was coupling the elimination for the letters and tape with the elimination for the murder. We should have kept the two inquiries separate. That was the major mistake. Humble was jailed for eight years, despite confessing. That's a, a long sentence. Four counts of perverting the course of justice. That was a record at the time before uh, the man known as Nick, Carl Beach, who made a fall of Scotland Yard recently over the VIP abuse inquiry. That was a very long sentence for Wearside Jack. Do you think that was an appropriate sentence? In fairness to Carl Beach, and it's difficult to be fair to him because he, he was a, a revolting man, an evil man in my opinion, but... Um, his hoax, uh, his lies cost reputations, but Humble's lies arguably cost lives. So that, was that a sufficiently long sentence? Well, at the time, I, I thought that it may have attracted a, a heavier sentence. But, you know, it, it is what it is. And he was sentenced to um, eight years, as you said, Stephen. And um, I, th I think, you know, all in all, no amount of time can replace or be a sentence for what happened here. The combination of events and actions and mistakes contributed to the outcome. Three women lost their lives after he involved himself. Would they have lost their lives if he hadn't? As you said, we will never know. But one thing we do know is that Peter Sutcliffe will have felt safer to commit his crimes, knowing that the police were on the wrong track. And we do know that he got away 
from one of those nine interviews is when he was questioned because of the Geordie accent and he should have been arrested at that point. I can still remember the fear generated by that tape. It virtually emptied the streets at night. But a month after that chilling voice was first heard, Peter Sutcliffe was arrested and released because his voice didn't match the voice on the tape. And so there is a strong argument that he should have got longer than eight years. But eight years is a substantial sentence. He was finally caught. He was sentenced, served his imprisonment. As we know, he, he, he himself has died since he was released. It's part of history now, but it's all part of, as well, the important steps of a faint line being drawn under this for the families, loved ones, friends of those 13 women that Peter Sutcliffe killed and the seven women that he attacked, that the story comes to an end in a way in terms of the killer, the hoaxer, the people on the wrong side of the fence here. And Richard McCann, who I started talking about at the beginning of, of our discussion, Stephen, also, interestingly, when I was coming out of court at the end of the Humboldt case, I met Richard McCann. And I, I hadn't met Richard before. And Richard, as I mentioned, was the young son of Wilma McCann, who was the first murder victim. And Humble had just been sentenced. Richard was leaving court quietly and discreetly on his own. And he saw me coming out and he came up and what he said was really interesting. He said, do you know, he said, I've had to come to court today to actually see him going to prison. Because when I was growing up, even though I knew that the person that had sent the letter and those tapes wasn't my mum's killer. The voice always was. And he said, being here today and seeing him and him going to prison has finally changed that. So with Peter Sutcliffe's death, with John Humble's arrest, and he's gone now too, that faint line, I think, is finally drawn under this for a lot of the families and loved ones. You've been listening to a Mail Plus true crime podcast, The Yorkshire Ripper, a detective story, with me, Stephen Wright. With thanks to ex-detective Chief Superintendent Chris Gregg, former head of CID at West Yorkshire Police.